y'all come on in, take your shoes off, sit on down. Y'all listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. My guest back by the woodpile today is Juana Rosa Pita, a Cuban-born international award-winning poet, author, and lecturer. Her publishing career began around the mid-1970s with the collection Pan de Sol, and since has written over 30 works, many of them available in English, Spanish, and Italian, and four other languages if you prefer. The late Nicaraguan poet Pablo Antonio Cuadra said of Mrs. Pita's work, She has been creating a mysterious realm of love and prophecy, an island of enchantment where words restore all that hatred turned to ashes. We started our conversation by my asking a little bit about her historical background. I was born in Havana on December the 8th, 1939. I spent the first 21 years of my life always in Cuba, in Havana. I used to like very much music, mathematics, and language, but I didn't know exactly what road I would take. All of a sudden, it happened that I was studying philosophy and letters, what they call here, you know, a career in literature. Mm -hmm. And then it happened, uh, the revolution. And of course, I, I was like all Cubans, I'm very glad about it that at first, but then things start happening that really deluded most of Cubans, but it was too late when we noticed that we were losing all our liberties and everything was dismantled, all the institutions. So all of a sudden, when I was 21, I was already married with one child just born. Mm -hmm. I had to leave Cuba because my husband had to leave because he had gotten into troubles in the university, uh, they protesting because all the professors that were not communists were being expelled. And actually, there was the death penalty had been established, even for all the ones that had fought against Batista and were not in agreement with Cuba becoming a satellite of the Soviet Union. So I had to live with my little child through Spain. It was a very hard time. I don't want to expand too much on that. But what I say is that, that I didn't know I was a poet when I left Cuba or anything like that. I was a student in the University of Havana. And then all of a sudden I saw myself thrown out, expelled, so to speak, from my life mm -hmm. no? and my country. So ex if you don't mind explaining to folks, because unfortunately I think Maybe a lot of people listening to this, if they were educated in America, they know little about what happened in Cuba. A totalitarian regime was implanted. The, actually, we have a family ruling the country now for almost 60 years. And it's a totalitarian regime. If you know what the Soviet Union was, what the countries of the East in Europe were, there you know what was established in Cuba. Everything destroyed human relationships the economy, the civil rights, human rights, uh, freedom of any kind, whether of expression or, or of election of what you do with your life, what you think, it's no separation of powers. Nothing that can guarantee human life in a sense that could be worth it to be live and develop freely 
mm-hmm. you know, like in a democracy. No, no democracy whatsoever. If you, if you know what democracy is and know what totalitarianism is, I don't have to explain anything else. Vibrational state. When science merges into spirit, it discovers itself poetry, mare nostrum, where everything is motion and stillness at the same time, in a truly strange kingdom implied by Jesus Christ. Harmony that weaves itself, soaring like a Chopin's phrase tempo rubato, like a dense birch tree foliage cradled by the autumn wind, like the resonance of the poem nesting the splendor of our encounter. After I left Cuba, later on, I went through many stages. I had to work in different things and help to support the family. And at a certain point, I was able to really rest for a while from that life of raising a family because I had two children after I left Cuba. And then when I start studying again, I have lost, um, the word loss is between quotation marks, no? Because nothing is lost. But uh, I lost sort of uh, 10 years in this um, trying to come along, you know, get along in in, in a new country and trying to help to support my family and everything, then I could breathe, so to speak. I entered to study again, finish my studies. Eventually, I became a PhD in comparative literatures. But this is a very long process. But at a certain point, when I went back to what I really love, which was poetry and enriching myself, with uh, living in another dimension other than having to survive, so to speak. Then I discovered poetry, but it, it required many ex- private and um, personal experiences and everything I live and everything I was and everything I love and desire and aspire to uh, was uh, sort of working inside me. And when I wrote the first poem, I was already 33. When I left my country, I was 21. But it just happened, you know. It's not that I wanted to do it or anything. I had already internalized all the poetry of the ones uh, I admire, and they helped me to discover that I also had a world to express. And I had to find my own language, but I didn't try to do it. It just so happened that it started happening inside myself, and all of a sudden, I wrote a poem. That was it. Once I started, I knew I had sort of discovered a mind of some sort, and all all it required was to really work on that mind, spend my life trying to, to do what I had to do, you know? The imperceptible. Photons and neutrinos don't travel as swiftly as our own thoughts. From all places you come to meet me, lightning impossible to turn round. To fulfill a beautiful dream takes far more courage than sculpting marble blocks. Mm-hmm. 
Now, Cuba is famous for some of their poets. The first one that comes to mind is Jose Marti. <laughs> Naturally, he was the one that fought against the uh, Spanish domination, and he was, uh, like me, <laughs> an exile most of his life. You know, he didn't last too long in Cuba, right. so he had to exile himself. And his ideas were, of course, that freedom is, uh, you know, in order to a country actually to be, to justice could be in a country, it had to be free, you know. Mm -hmm. The education of the citizens and the freedom are inseparable in that sense. Now, from my understanding, both the Cubans in exile and also the, the Castro regime claimed Jose Marti as their own. It doesn't matter if you read his work, then you see that he had to be sort of used selectively by the totalitarian regime to use him as an inspiration. <laughs> if you read his whole work, then that doesn't apply. He wouldn't accept anything that imply the slavery of people to to a power, a state that crushes them, you know. Right. Anything like that. Well, it, it reminds me of how people take scripture out of context. Yeah, you can misuse anybody, yeah. especially the ones that have the higher thoughts. You can misuse the Gospels and the Word of Jesus too, but I mean, whoever knows what he's talking about, then that person knows that he's being misused. How I discovered Juana Rosa's works was via the life of another Cuban poet, Angel Quadra. Quadra had railed against the Baptiste regime, was initially celebrated and made a spokesman by Fidel Castro's new government before the poet soured and began secretly rioting against the new dictatorship. Arrested and sentenced to one of the communist gulags in 1969, Angel Quadra began writing to and collaborating with Juana Rosa in the late 70s, in spite of his imprisonment. Juana Rosa explains how the relationship came about. Oh, well, that was also a long process that lasted about nine years. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because I got his first letter coincidentally, if there are such things as, as coincidence. The same year that I published my first book of poetry, at that time I was living in Fairfax, Virginia, and I studied my doctoral degree in Catholic University of America. And I received his first letter through my aunt that still lived in Havana. And he was in prison and that letter asked for me to, because I had just been published my first book and, and win a prize in Spain. So he knew about it through my aunt. And he actually told me, you know, his plight being in prison, the only thing he wanted is to, the world to know him, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And immediately I contacted him, his sister in California, which uh, talked to me about him, which I had known probably when I was a child. Maybe I saw him going to my aunt's house, but I don't recall him because I'm younger than him. And I told him, give me his things. I will be able to, I will be glad to publish them. So I started to publish his poetry and, and that's how it started. And then I sent him through his sister correspondence, and sometimes it arrived, sometimes it didn't, because uh, with uh, 
Cuba is like that, you know. They control everything. I managed to smuggle some of my poems, and, and these are the poems that gave him the, so to speak, uh, inspiration to write his poems in correspondence from prison. And then he was, uh, he had been released, and and then he was in prison again, and I once, uh, I managed to put up with uh, famous poets from Latin America and everything, a, a book of, uh, in which of uh, Octavio Paz was in that book. All the greats of Latin America collaborated with me so I could call the attention of the world about his plight. And then I published collective homage to poets in prison, so to speak, unjustly. And with that, he was eventually released because of our Amnesty International intervened and all that. Not that they have a lot a lot of influence in Cuba, but anyway, he eventually was released from prisons and eventually he could leave Cuba. But the whole process lasted nine years. And death does not proceed. The only thing one needs in order to die is time, bitter taste of mortality. This doesn't mean that we'll happily hand over our time to death. And for that, while the life ship sails, I left death in the waiting room so far from my mind, not to mention from my heart. If only because you have asked me to ensure that my enthusiasm be at any price inexhaustible. With this, Sweet resolve, I could never, for dying, find the right moment. When the one who gives us life invites the one I am to join him beyond time, I'll be without it and without death. belongs to one of my latest books called, um, in English will be called The Miracle Unfolds. And uh, this uh, book is actually the second of a wider work that will be called eventually Harmonies Endeavors. And the first one was Legendary Entanglement, published in Italy at first and then immediately I published it here in Spanish, and then The Miracle of Faults, as I say, which is not published in English as a book, but only in Spanish and Italian, so the Satal Milagro, and the one that came after was published a few months ago, that is called, um, in Spanish, Bosque del Corazón Renaciente, which in English will be called Forest of the Renaissance Heart. That poem uh, is part of that book, The Miracle of Faults, and it's been translated by Erin Goodman. And it's part of that process that started when, when I encountered um, Giovanni Vignale, a quantum physicist that uh, is a curator professor of the University of Missouri. And that happened in April of 2015. 
physics, which was my first love, mathematics and physics. But of course, I didn't go through that path. And of course, he's a poet, but he went through the path professionally through the path of physics, but eventually we encounter ourselves. And um, here we are working together. We even have a, a project in English that is going to be called The Impossible Spin, one of his uh, main concepts uh, that he develops in his wonderful book called The Beautiful Invisible, Creativity and Theoretical Physics. I discovered this book in a Use bookstore of Harvard Square, since I live in Boston. And when I saw it, I knew it had to do with me deeply and immediately contacted him. And of course, he felt the same and, and the rest is not only history, but it's history in the making, no? so to speak, and poetry in the making. And of course, uh, I'm talking to him because without enthusiasm, the etymology of enthusiasm is God inside of you. Without that, nothing can be done. But with enthusiasm, even the impossible, no? I talk in that book about the miracle of false because of that. It's a, actually, it was a far-fetched event that we would find each other. But I found him through the title of his book because I knew the yeah. words you, that come through you, really, you can be identified if somebody is in the end of the world. Uh -huh. <laughs> it will see you through that thing you have created. Because these are the works of the Spirit have that power, no? Not knowing whatever became of. Son of Julia, for whom my grandfather used to hide the potato under his bed, seasoning her housekeeping with a jest. Robertico, with his snowy smile, lit up my visions when I was a child, leaning toward infinity. In those days, I was the white goddess of his boyhood. His favorite dish, the unforgettable chicken lost in the garden. Soon after I entered into exile, a field of remote enigmatic waves, he was in prison for defying those whose souls are black. I never heard from him again. But this morning, just before dawn, a blue suitcase arrived on a raft, washed up on the shore of a dream. Now I write this poem not knowing whatever became of Robertico. Let this be a sign of the adverse miracle also known as uprootedness. I want to go back to one of the things that you had written to Angel Quadra that has always stuck with me. You had said that I know you better through your words Sure, that's what I say when I found the book of Giovanni Vignale and when I read only his first words and his title and, and everything, I knew him already as if I had just encountered somebody that I already knew immediately before saying a word to him or him even answering to me, <laughs> to my first email. So that applies for everything, probably, if I read uh, attentively. Uh, the poems of Angel Cuadra in, in order to 
actually publish them and everything and let him be known. I, I knew him, you know. From Ark to Fish When I was very young and thought I had but little time to pursue light and joy, I gave it all to build a sound ark, though of invisible beauty for dreams to thrive. That explains how I got to you so well equipped with enthusiasm, essential subtle cargo, in spite of the insidious nature of the floods that abound. Having now paired our dreams on the sand, like the fish he once drew, we jointly draw the entrusted secret verse that will steadfastly swim afar in the waters threatening to wipe all out. Forest of the Renaissance Heart, and um, probably it covers a little like an image of uh, that refers to one of my first books called The Ark of Dreams, published in 1978. Sort of poetry, the image of poetry as an ark in which we gather all the dreams of humanity, the essential dreams of humanity, the ones that make us all be sort of. a big fraternity, even when we are against each other, but at a deep level, we are one in those dreams. And that was the meaning of that title, The Ark of Dreams. Actually, it started with a poem called Legacy. I'm just giving this legacy mm-hmm. because I had the idea of death can come anytime. And that was 1978, imagine. Mm-hmm. So then it ended with an epitaph. So this was my legacy, these 81 poems. I say I started with that arc, but then all of the sudden, from arc to fish, then I feel that considering the times we are living in, it has to be a fish that carries the message even through <laughs> through the waters. Mm-hmm. I cannot explain a poem, let me tell you that. But, you know, from art to fish, the fish is what Christ wrote on the sand that washes it all. But the fish is the spiritual message or that poem or that verse that we, Giovanni and I, wish we could write but actually could be that only a verse can enclose or encapsulate all the things we have written before and all the ones we want to write, and that is the one we want to transcend, even after we are gone, no? So you feel like your poetry is the things that you would put in the arc of maybe your, your essence? No, it's not my essence. It's something that we have been meant to do and we have to deliver it. It's it's more like something that we don't know what it is, but we know it's it's essential that that we do it. It's not saving myself. It is something more transcendent, no? Like something has been 
given to you that you have to. As I say, I cannot explain a poem because if I could explain it, I wouldn't have written it. I Sometimes I read the poem that I wrote 25 years ago and I discover that I understand better what certain scene means. But I didn't know it when I wrote it. And this is why sometimes he calls it a crystal ball, but it's not a crystal ball in itself. It's just like something you have inside yourself, but you cannot express it in a, in a language that would be more like a journal article. No, that only through poetry can be sort of touched or addressed. And it has to be clear for the spirit, but not necessarily in order to be explained, no? From Legendary Entanglement, number 89, Language of the Miracle. The veil surrounding it could seem a transparent tool, but instead is drawn from the same marble as the Christ. There's no alchemy, only a great love between the fingers, infinite care, art and patience. Like the poem, whose language harkens a subtle translucent veil, nonetheless distill passion from our own being. So I wanted to ask you about Penelope's journeys. You wrote a whole book of poetry, I guess from the point of view, if I'm correct, uh, from Ulysses' wife who was waiting for him for, what was it, 20 years? As I say, I don't decide things. You see, I'm not like a novelist that decides to write a novel and then makes a plan and anything. Mm -hmm. I never know. When I start writing a book, mm -hmm. I never know what I'm going to do in the sense I know something's happening and all of a sudden the book starts forming. In the case of Penelope, I'm, we are talking about 1980. I was living in Miami and I had never, because precisely because of the rupture of exile, I had never gotten to read the Odyssey as I would have done if I had stayed studying philosophy and letters in Cuba. So, but I had bought that book in, in Caracas at some point when I lived there uh, for one and a half years because of my late husband, uh, the father of my children, he was having a, a work there. And I bought that book in the supermarket, by the way. It was waiting <laughs> to be read. And when I read that book in Miami, immediately I thought the uh, character of Penelope as uh, the co-protagonist of the Odyssey, although it was a co-protagonist that was sort of implied and hidden because there is little participations, but they are so powerfully meaningful, her participations in the Odyssey, that I realized as a poet, I had already written my first five, six books of poetry, that it, it was to rediscover, to let her talk about all the scenes of the Odyssey and, of course, of life, because the Odyssey is actually an allegory of life, too, through her point of view. But it's not that I decided to do that. I just started to write these poems in which I start identifying myself with her, but in a very broad and deep sense, no? Like she represents 
the uh, actually the Odyssey cannot happen if there is no her strategy of waiting, because otherwise he couldn't have ever returned to Ithaca. So uh, it takes two, <laughs> you know, right. to make that process be valid and become a poem. So even though her participation is little, I saw every single meaning and could write through her voice talking sometimes about me, sometimes about her, but the, the structure of the whole book is the Odyssey, the point of reference, no? And also the contrast between history and eternity, in the sense the, the things that are eternally meaningful for mankind, and then the, the things of history that come and go and change, the change of history. And, and the things that are essential and always the same for all humans, like life and death and love, and all these things is, is two points of view totally different. And they merged in the Odyssey, but that was her point of view, which was not the one of the history, no? More like a spiritual and human point of view about things. Yeah, you know, when I was a younger, as a teenager especially, I, I loved the Odyssey, but for the adventure of Ulysses, you know, the violence, the, the puzzles he had to go through. But as I've gotten older, and it was even before I read your book, I remember uh, hearing the story of when she was, Penelope was trying to stave off all those suitors. It was the first time as an adult, and now as a grandparent, that I became intrigued by her patience and by her loyalty and you know of course I wondered would I had had that in myself could I have been as strong as Penelope he represents that human thing that you have to have in order for anything really great or important to really come to reality which is attention and weight and knowing <laughs> having that inner intuition to know when things deserve to be wait for forever, you know? Yeah. It, it she, takes what it takes. Without that, nothing can come to truth, you know? Especially with our culture of instant gratification. Exactly. <laughs> she, uh, that, that's what I saw, but I saw it in a very experienced, vital manner that I started. I didn't have the plan to write the book, but I started writing it anyway. And when uh, happened that, uh, the Marielle boat lift that so many 150,000 Cubans came. Came Reinaldo Arenas, a, a great uh, writer that came through that lift. I met him coincidentally in a play. Actually, it was a funeral home. <laughs> <laughs> he asked me, what are you writing now? In Cuba, we read some of your books. Mar Entre Rejas, Sea Behind Birds, things like that. But what are you writing? So I mentioned that because I was, oh, I'm so interested because that reminds me of the wife of Ponce de Leon that waited for him in a castle in Cuba while he was um, exploring Florida. I mean, so it, it just happened to be that I gave him that manuscript when it was finished and asked me he wanted to write the prologue. Wow. And that's the history of the prologue of the book which I almost never put a prologue on a book, but uh, it was he had just come out of Cuba, and probably that was one of the first things he published. It was amazing to me. For folks listening, he's the author of Before Night Falls, which is more famous here. Exactly, and then this is how 
coincidentally, he was interested in the theme that I was writing about. Especially with Cubans, you know, so many in exile and so many still stuck on the island. You know, husband and wife separated, you know, uh, parents and, and children. I could apply to that at a very social political level, but when I got into the scene, it just was brother. But the thing is, there is no contradiction between the brother and the vision and the actual uh, happenings of life, and it applies for everything. And of course, it has been that reading has been taken sometimes. Penelope is very, it's a book that is quoted, um, that it has um, arised so much interest in Latin America and everywhere. Some people see more the deeper level, some people see more the, the outer level that the coincidence of Cuba seeing as Ithaca, but actually Penelope is the one that travels, so because her travels are something more, uh, and they are not in space, so to speak, no? Right. poet we were just talking about, Ronaldo Arenas, wrote that while he was still in Cuba, his works were celebrated in the West and on many university reading lists. But when he finally escaped the island and began telling the world the imprisonment and torture he had endured at the hands of Fidel Castro's agents, slowly he and other Cuban exiles' books began disappearing from the lists. The invitations to speak dried up, and a general deafness to their stories prevailed, particularly among those on the political left. I asked about Juana Rosa's own experiences of discrimination in the free West. I took for granted the fact that even though the revolution had destroyed a nation and really make it more miserable, spiritually, economically, physically, and, and especially in, in human relations and everything than it was before, infinitely worse. I knew what had happened is that was the first mediatic figure created and that it was there to stay because uh, he had won, he spent all the resources in the propaganda. Actually, he used his human resources to, you know, send to Angola, to Latin America, create guerrillas. So the, the Cubans, didn't get anything that really would work for them in the nation. Everything was done through pro for propaganda, and because of that, the propaganda was won in the world. So I always knew that I was uh, didn't have a country and didn't have basically the sympathy to start with for whom I was, no matter how good a person I could be or, or anything. So, but I had never complained or dwelt into that, never. Things happen, and I'm so fortunate that have been seen by people that are not drawn by propaganda or things like that, like great poets that like my poetry and all of a sudden launch me or help me to be recognized without, you know, in spite of the fact that I had never had any support from any institution or any country. See what I mean? Mm -hmm. No support coming from anybody else than people that really appreciated my work. And for me, that's even better. I don't care about, you know, I wouldn't like to, to be dependent on, you know, because all of a sudden you are not even free. 
you have to be dependent on the support of anybody. So that has two phases. I have never dwelled into that. I, I know that it has taken from me many things, but when it happened, well, what a surprise. I knew I could have had this if I was not, but I didn't stop 10 minutes or five, maybe two or three years. <laughs> From Legendary Entanglement number 63, Physiology of the Miracle. Although physics was my forte, when it came to choosing my path, surprisingly, I embraced literature. The word withheld the enigma of turning expression into a stream of intertwining thoughts and feelings, challenging profound solitude. I imagine that when you were younger, you took an opposite turn. Already a poet, physics mystery was more attracted to you. For the love of the abstract, plunging yourself into reality in search of the precise language to express a compelling new theology. Each of us in our own world wanting to awaken sleeping hearts. And all along God kept smiling given the utter improbability of our encounter to join forces on the hanging bridge between poetry and science. Knowing that with time, we would make it through the invisible, both forged by our identical love of beauty. from Legendary Entanglement, and that describes, I try to imagine the life of uh, Giovanni Vignale when he was young, and was a, being a poet, he chose physics, and then, on my part, I did the opposite, and then the probability of our, our encounter was, was really almost impossible, so I think that the poem ends with the fact that due to our love, share our love for beauty, Remember, his book is called The Beautiful in the Invisible, and he tries to find the beauty of reality through physics. And I try to find the beauty of life through poetry, because poetry is really trying to find beauty in the things that amount for the beauty of life, which sometimes are not the most obvious ones, no? So with that... And the fact that we wanted to discover all this and share it with everybody, that finally ended up making us meet each other. This is what uh, I call it the miracle, no physiology of the miracle. But then, of course, I introduced, uh, thank God, laughing at the possibility of our encounter. <laughs> but but it, it just happened. He laughed, but finally he knew we, we will make it. As I say, my way of being Christian and religious is very creative. You cannot rely on anything. You have to discover everything and make it happen. Otherwise, you are not a co-creator. The human being is not a slave or or, or only a parrot or anything. It just has to prove that it has that seed of, of being an image of God, of being like him in the mosque outrageously creative. We are not gods. 
but we should learn with his ways because we have the possibility. We, a human being, once I, I said, is like a project. You have to realize all your potentials. Otherwise, you don't really reach the level that a human being should be. Because have you ever seen animals doing poetry, creating <laughs> music, the work of Chopin, which I adore, and painting like uh, Masaccio, Botticelli, Caravaggio? No. Uh, you you don't see that. That is what really makes us being human to create, to go beyond what is given to us. I feel, and this is why I say that, yes, we are co-creators, not in the sense that we are gods, in the sense that we think our human realm. We have to, in order to be the best of ourselves, we have to create. precisely of who I am and, and my deepest belief, I have the greatest freedom because life is a mystery and everything is a mystery and part of my belief is that we have to discover things and that's part of, uh, of it's not that anything is given, you know. We have to discover everything. Actually, I once wrote a, an aphorism that said, with God, you cannot play. If you want to believe him first, you have to create him. Even God had to be discovered as a living a reality. It has to be an experience. If it's only an idea, I'm with God or I'm with... It's nothing. God as an idea doesn't exist. It's either an experience or... And this is what I mean with enthusiasm, you know. The enthusiasm of my poetry is based on who I am and probably what I have inside of me that notwithstanding everything and all the evidence to the contrary, I have that faith and that hope and love is the, the fountain of everything, you know. Because for me, God is love. That was the, the only thing that I internalize about my education that has, you know, education has many things that are superficial and, and not essential, but I internalize the fact that God is love. You were raised in a Christian home, correct? Christian, basically, but not necessarily very practicing Christians or anything. Okay. Although I went to a Catholic school. Right. Yes. My home was not particularly practicing Catholics or anything like that, but I was raised in a Catholic school, and I have been through many stages, 25 years without stepping on a church, but then... My roots have been always working inside me, and and those are stages. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not an intellectual in in that sense, although I'm. A <laughs> I don't know how to say. I don't choose things that are really so so important and transcendental, because I decide that I have to go. No, if I didn't feel it, I wouldn't do it. You know. Leap of faith. Never forget the leap of faith. Entrusted art, courage, and grace. Never forget the leap of faith, without which there is no poetry to express depths. Through freed words enlightened, givers of sound and resonance, 
no bold gambling of strengths, brought together by study, life, and work, there is not even enough passion to launch toward new discoveries. If you see me falter, tell me never forget the leap of faith toward the invisible sea where we found the beginnings of beauty to which we could give life and voice for ourselves and others. I tell you, never forget the leap of faith. If I feel you lose the conviction to live so attentively and in the face of infinity's immense trove, in its making we are made. belongs to the miracle of force and that's um, very simple you know the leap of faith that you have to give in order to give the best of yourself if you don't have that faith you would stay home and say don't move because of this this probably not all the considerations that you know the leap of faith without that there is no uh, human enterprise that can really be courageously daring and at the same time doesn't requires guarantee of that you are going to succeed in anything that can be that is anything that you are looking for you are not looking for you know you you are enriching so to speak reality you are reality and by doing that hopefully the reality of others and something that you cannot expect that you are doing not the leap of faith is, is important I'd like to give a special thanks to previous In the Corner Back by the Woodpile guest, episode 109 to be exact, poet and Juana Rosa's son, Mario Pita, for setting this interview up. And if you'd like to check out Juana Rosa Pita's works, most if not all her books can be found on Amazon.com. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram by searching for Spun Counter Guy. You can send us an email via spuncalendarguy at hotmail.com. The podcast is also hosted on iTunes and podbean.com. Peace and chicken grease. Uh